This is the Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Today we speak with poet Jenna Lee, who is the daughter of Vietnamese refugees and lives and works as a physician and educator in New Hampshire. She is the author of two full-length poetry collections, Six Rivers, and A History of the Cetacean American Diaspora. In this conversation, Jenna and I talk about her many obsessions. We begin with her early obsession with the Bronte sisters. We find ourselves at the ocean's edge discussing sea creatures, especially whales, and their prominence in her work and others. And we turn eventually to translation, to names, to the things we call ourselves and call the creatures around us. Let's drop in as Jenna takes us back to her earliest obsession. Probably the obsession that started it all is that I'm really, really obsessed with the the novels of the Bronte sisters, um, and this, this sort of began very early in life, and it's kind of it, it was sort of my principal obsession, how I first came to connect with the word with the word obsession. Um, when I was a, a kid, uh, you know, just a, a preteen, uh, this is this is an obsession I shared with my sister. Uh, my, my sister is about three years older than me. And we, we got this uh, copy of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, and um, we began reading it together. And it was, it was a strange time in our lives. Um, we were just entering adolescence, and uh, everything in the book was new to us, um, ideas about everything about it. We would read it together, and we would just have these bursts of totally uh, senseless laughter when we were reading it, like at parts that weren't even funny. And it became a sort of like, our mother began to worry about us, that we would start talking about it all the time. And I guess that was my first real connection with, with the literature. And, and later, um, as I was growing up, I, I remember when we first started, when we first got the Internet in our home, the first thing I did was, was look up, the, look up in the book online and see if there were other people who had as deep an interest in it as, as I did, as, as we did, and try to connect with the people. And that, that was my, my memory of my, my first major obsession. So it was an obsession that actually spilled over into wanting to find a fan community. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I remember our family was pretty slow to get the internet. I, my friends, some of them had internet before me. And I remember thinking, you know, the first thing I'm going to do when I get this wonderful, fast dial-up connection is I'm going to go look for, for look for a fan community where I can find people who love the same things I do. So, so what was it in particular? Like when you think back on this early obsession with uh, the the Bronte sisters, and especially with uh, you know Jane Eyre, was there something in particular about the books or about the the world that was being constructed or the writing that you found compelling or or intriguing? Right. So there, there was a lot about it, and I think I think Charlotte Bronte is very skilled at at world building. Um, my, my favorite Charlotte Bronte novel, actually. After a while, it was not Jane Eyre. About a year after I read Jane Eyre, I read her other novel, Villette, and since then, that's been my favorite. But in Villette, she creates a very deep world um, that's set in a fictional country that's loosely based on, on Belgium, but which has you know its own towns and its own royalty and its own everything. And I remember being just being sucked into this world. Um, the, the, that book takes place in a boarding school, and I remember thinking, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a teacher in a boarding school. I loved this idea of this female community of women teachers and women students just having these close relationships with each other. And I think it maybe had something to do with me growing up, growing up with, with a sister that these female connections were, were something that, that I valued, but I never had experienced that at the same scale and in the same number as, as portrayed in these books. 
And that, that was something I really wanted. And I, I think also the Brontes as, as a model of a, of a family of, of sisters, of, of women who who loved writing the way me and my sister loved writing. We, we, we both still do. Um, um, that, that, that was something that I really, I think I really wanted. I, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I had some difficulties making friends as a young child for various reasons. I had a lot of social anxiety. And I, th- I think this idea of, she, she, in her book, she just built these really intricate, really real seeming communities with, with a lot of strong women interacting with, the other, with each other in very, very intricate ways. And that was something that really spoke to me. So, so in some respects, perhaps, you know, this, this existed as, as something of a utopia or as a, as sort of like an aspirational thing. The right. world that, that was being constructed in the text was a world that, that you desired for yourself in the real. Right, which is kind of funny because the books are, um, especially later in her career in books like Villette, I mean, the, there, there's a lot of darkness to them, and Villette is, very, is sort of famous for his portrayal of being one of the earliest depictions of, of depression in, in the literature. And so mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not a bright book. Um, and it's the main character is this very sullen, very sour person, and that, I think that that appealed to me too. That uh, somebody who who wasn't bright and sunny and virtuous was nonetheless her her interiority mattered, and I think I think that's a lot of what drew me to to, to literature and to to everything is that, that that the idea that that sort of interiority had had an importance of its own, and that it could, it could be the center of of a vivid world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was thinking that many of her novels have a, a particularly dark side or, or even a snarky tone to, to how they handle some of their characters. Honestly, after I read the Bronte novels, um, I, I went through this period where nothing, no other book ever seemed to live up to it. I would go to my friends and you know who are also bookworms, I would be like, I'm looking for a book with a very snarky, sour, sarcastic female first-person narrator. That's all I'm going to read now, because after, after that, there are other books. It became difficult for me to relate to other books for for a short period after that. Have you since found other models uh, of this type of writing? Um. So yeah. So it's it's, it's interesting. So my my search for a Villette like book has taken me on on interesting journeys into corners of literature that I didn't expect. So um, I, I had a, a very good friend in high school who read a lot of fantasy, and she recommended certain fantasy works. Uh, by uh, Patricia McKillop and Diana Wynne-Jones that had sort of a similar feel, which is something I, I didn't expect to find in, you know, genre, what, what, what's called genre fiction, something that, that um, fit that model. But I, I was surprised to find that there were these women authors in, in fantasy and, and, and other, other genres who try to bring a, a, similar, a similar subjectivity into their work. Um, and, then, and then later, of course, in, in poetry, I found a lot of that, a lot of... Uh, the, the strong voice and, and, and the world building as well. Who, who among like contemporary poets would you, you cite as being sort of part of your own uh, cadre of, of writers that write in this particular way? Um, let me see. Um, I, I mean, I'm thinking perhaps to... like, uh, well, Janine Hall Gailey, perhaps. Yes, yes, I, I love her work. That, that's a good. That's a good example of somebody who writes often from a, from a from a strong from a strong female voice and who has a lot of character building and, and world building in her work. Um, um, Hannah Sangi Park. I don't know if you know her work. Uh, she has a book, The Same Different, um, which is a uh, largely based on on, on folklore, um, in which she often she inhabits a number of uh, characters from different folklore, uh, Korean folklore. Uh, 
European folklore, and it's, it's obviously very, very different, but it has that kind of magical, has that magical way of, of, of inhabiting a different world. In, in what ways do you feel, I, I, I guess one of the other things that kind of seems to be coming out of this too, is that your, your quest for this particular type of voice or this particular type of writing has, has brought you increasingly into the world of the fantastic. And um, I was wondering in what mm-hmm. ways has that carried over into your own writing, especially the most recent book? Um, right. So I've always loved fairy tales. Um, I love fairy tale retellings um, in, in books and in music and, um, you know, in, in ballad, in balladry, um, in movies. Um, so that, that's always been something that I've, I've carried with me. Um, it, it's something Charlotte Bronte does well in her work that, you know, she'll, she'll bring the, the mythic into her, her work. You know, there, there'll be a scene where she's Somebody is, you know, going to see a play or looking at a painting, and all of a sudden they're conceiving up in very mythic terms. So, um, that's that's something I'm always on. That that that's always resonated with me. Um, so my my uh, second book, the one that most recently came out, and which is coming out in a new edition, um, in just a month now. Um, the book is called A History of the Cetacean American Diaspora. So in the in the book, um, it's sort of blending science and more a more personal, more fantastical way of looking at the world. So um, the book began, it's sort of woven around the idea of, basically I went to the museum one day and I I learned a fact, which I should have known all my life, which I did it, which is that whales are descended from land mammals. This is a fact that no one ever taught me at school and which when I learned it really captivated me because I always thought whales had had lived in the sea forever, but apparently they're evolved from land mammals that went back to the sea. and that, that struck me as having parallels with, with a lot of things, with, with mythic quests, um, and also with, with real-life stories of, of migration and immigration. Um, it's, it's connected with me because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a daughter of, of, of refugees who, who crossed an ocean and began a life in a, in a new country. And the, sort of the whale's journey from one ecosystem to another um, struck me as sort of a, a, a motif that, that, that really called out to me. And so, so the book weaves that metaphor talks about those journeys, the whales' journeys, the journeys of immigrants, um, and also different journeys in, in folklore. There's a poem where I talk about um, the West Wind um, and how, how it's, um, it's been so important. In, in, for example, my own family history, my family, uh, my parents came to America on a boat that, you know, from Vietnam to America, from a west to east direction, and also that's, but the West Wind also has importance in, as a character in, in Native American mythology and in in, in Greek mythology, um, Helen of Troy, her, her boat went from west to east. Um, and that, that was the same wind that was in the sailors of her ship. So, so in my book, I'm sort of trying to tie together all these different threads, science and, and history and uh, personal history and mythology, trying to come up with a, a synthesis of uh, all these different ideas. I guess, I guess like, out of, out of this book, I mean, it sounds like there are multiple threads working through here. The west wind, the... the um, you know, the whales and sort of this idea of migration, of movement, of of these threads, you bring up, you know, Helen of Troy, you bring up all these other um, characters and ideas. Um, mm-hmm. Do they coalesce in a particular way? Is there like a central set of um, figures or central obsession that you say is what governs this particular book? Or is it really in, you know, a, a symphony of different competing obsessions that drives this book? Right. So I think the main obsession that drives the book is, is the whale obsession, which is a more recent obsession. Um, I, I thought about talking about it, but I, I'm, I'm afraid to set myself up as a whale expert because there's so many people who know more about whales than I do. But um, I, th- I think the main obsession that 
when I, when I was writing this book, I, I became to, in my life, identify very strongly with, with whales um, in, in many ways. Uh, whales, for example, eat a lot of krill. I, I like to eat shrimp. <laughs> um, and, and shrimping is a very big thing in, in, in Vietnam and in Vietnamese uh, immigrant communities. You know, uh, I, I started thinking about whales and all the, all the different uh, resonances I, I have with the whales. And I, I think that was, that was the main driving obsession behind the book is each day as I sat down to write it, I, I started thinking whenever I saw, or th- there's another poem in the book, for example, where uh, there, uh, one fact about humpback whales is that their, their milk, uh, the mother's milk is, is pink. And it, it started me thinking about um, when I was a kid and uh, strawberry milk um, was a big part of my growing up. I grew up in Minnesota and we'd go to the state fair every year and uh, there'd be this, the strawberry milk stand would be like one of the major features of a state fair. And I, so when I watched this documentary about the whales and the pink milk, it sort of brought me back to, to my childhood, my relationship with my mother, going to the fair, drinking the pink milk. and I, So I guess in the, ultimately the book ended up shaping itself around the whales, but bringing in all these different threads of other things that had quirkily uh, stuck in my mind uh, from different books I'd read or different things I'd seen over the years. I know you've said that you're not necessarily a whale expert, but in addition to sort of the, the humpback whale's milk, um, are there other like intriguing facts you learned about whales that that perhaps changed the way that you thought about your own relationship with the whales or with, you know, right. this as a cultural so metaphor. Thing, I, I often joke, uh, so for work, as for professional work, I work as a radiologist. Um, a mm-hmm. lot of my work has to do with doing ultrasounds. And um, one day it occurred to me that me doing an ultrasound, using ultrasound technology, which is sound waves to see inside people, it's, it's basically the same thing whales are doing with sonar, for example, right? They're sending out sound waves. It's what we call echolocation that we always do when they send out sound waves. It's basically the same thing. I guess all, all these little things that the <laughs> so sometimes I joke I work in the department, my hospital's department of echolocation. I, I, I guess as you've started to recognize more of these overlaps or these these correspondences, has it made you think even increasingly? Do you see whale-like behavior or whale-like um, overtones in other aspects of your life? It's interesting right. that the career then pops out as like, oh, this is what I do. I am actually very whale-like in my in my work, you know. And you talked right. about sort of like right. how how you encounter food is also whale-like. Are there other right. things that kind of jump out as like, oh, I'm weirdly whale-like in this moment? Right. It's interesting. The thing about obsessions, right, is that the more the more you dwell in them, the more you continue to dwell in them. You know, when I lived in New York and I'd come out of the subway, you know, I'd text my friend, I'm breaching now, you know, because that's, that's what you say when the whales come out of the water. Uh, honestly, before I started writing this book, I, I knew very little about whales. I, I didn't really think about them much, but nowadays everything, whenever I see a story about whales, there have been a lot of stories about whales in the news lately, you know, uh, certain species of whales are not are not doing well. There, there are a number that are critically endangered and so forth. But I guess the more you learn, the more I, I learn about them, the more the more sympathy I, I have with them and with what they're, what they're going through. Um, each species is very different. You know, for example, the, the humpback whale species is a more uh, warlike species where the, the males are always fighting with each other over the females, whereas, for example, the North, the North Atlantic right whale species is a much more peaceful species, um, much much less monogamy, which is how they all man- manage to get along, is because every, everyone just sort of gets with everyone else. That's actually the species, ironically, that's in the, that's in the most trouble right now. Um, environmentally, um, they're not doing very well in that. It seems like such a shame because they're really a, a model for a very, very peaceful, peaceful manner of living. Now, I, I was driving this morning. And I was also listening to a story about um, sort of the 
the current um, endangered status of the orca, of the um, the killer whale in the Pacific Northwest. Right, right. And, and, and so much of that, right, and a lot of that I think, is, is human driven. With you know what we're doing with to the seas with plastics and so forth. And I, I think one of the great changes in language actually that we've seen in our lives, right? Is that I remember when I was a kid, we we I wouldn't call them killer whales. That's what they're called. Like the word orca was like not really used. It was one of those weird words that just appeared in crossword puzzles, it was like oleo or something. But now I, I feel like the majority of people are, are starting to call them orcas because I think that name can a damaging name that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just one of the examples of how language can make can make such a difference in how we view the world and how we how we relate to other creatures. That just changing the name, seeing that we're going to prefer this name over that name, is in in some ways increased our feeling of connection to them. If that makes any sense. No, I I think it does. I think what what grows out of that, you know, that power of the names that we we choose for ourselves, the names that we impart onto others, especially other, you know, non-human creatures on this earth, right. you know, really does shape sort of the narrative. I'm thinking too of how central the, the orca is in a lot of Pacific Northwest indigenous culture in terms of mm-hmm. the artwork. Right, you right. Know, so much of the artwork revolves around the orca. Um, right, there are right. narratives around the orca. But yeah, right. I mean, even, and this was even before our interview started, we talked a little bit about names and the names that we choose and the names that we end up with sometimes without our choice, you know, when our names get mm-hmm. mispronounced or we get, um, I've heard horror stories of, of uh, people whose last names were changed by immigration officers a few generations ago simply because right. they didn't know how to write or pronounce the uh, that person's family name. And so they were just given right. something generic instead. Right, not not even that long ago, a, a place I used to work. Um, I remember there was a woman who had a, who had a long name, and I remember she started working there as a nurse. And another another woman was like, "Well, we're just going to call you this instead." So I, I can't I can't read that. Like even now, that was you know a few years ago. That that's still that's still a mentality that goes that's going around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, what is the the value of of the right name? Right, right. As you've been talking, I'm, I'm thinking of what you're saying about the, about the Pacific Northwest myths about about the orcas. Um, another another animal I've recently become very obsessed with is is owls, and so I started looking up all the the, the folklore in owls. And a lot of it is very negative. Whale, whales have the good fortune that most of the myths about them, or a lot of the myths about them, have have positive aspects to them. That a lot of the you know whales are viewed as majestic and you know grand and wise sometimes, depending on the on the myth. Whereas owls, you know, are thought to bring bad luck, and I, I looked in almost universally in all cultures, the myths tend to be very negative, and I think that's damaged a lot of the ways we relate to owls as as animals. That in some countries, you know, they're they're treated very badly, um, you know, hunted for parts and so forth. I, I think just just like the names are important, the, the myths we form around different subjects, different animals, different species, different kinds of people that that can also be very very important in how we relate to them. Mm-hmm. Even even if we don't process those myths consciously, I mean, we we don't go, I don't go around, you know, thinking every day about the the myths about owls. But I, I think there's a lot of subconscious ways that's affected the way we we relate to them as a group. It also speaks to the great power that that a single narrative can have in terms of changing perception. I'm thinking perhaps you know Harry Potter. You know that series has changed in some respect popular imagination around owls. Right. Yes. Exactly. Like almost every popular representation of the, of the snowy owl, in particular, in our culture, I feel is 
whenever you go, if you go to a children's store, all the, all the toys are snowy owl based. They have some relation to Harry Potter, and I think I think Harry Potter did a lot to because because of the character Hedwig did a lot to uh, increase the uh, popularity. Of, and I, I think that that's a, that's a good thing, you know, especially in, in a book that reaches out to children. Um, people people are just beginning to figure out how they relate to the world that it, it was able to get this this audience that was very very receptive. Are there other um, animals that you found yourself obsessed with more recently? You've talked about owls, whales. Is this taking you down a path of becoming more and more interested in different animals that you've encountered? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's funny because I, when I grew up, I was not an animal person. And I kind of, I, I grew up in a family, uh, we're, we're all allergic to a lot of things. <laughs> and so we, we never had any cats or dogs or anything like that. And so I would look at families that animals, I would feel very, and I would be like, oh, I guess I'm not an animal person. And in hindsight, that, that was just silly. I mean, I, I think it's hard not to be an animal person. I mean, that's almost a redundant thing, right? Like an ATM machine, an animal person, a person is an animal. I've, I've been thinking a lot about manatees lately. Uh, my sister, who I mentioned earlier in this interview, lives in Florida near this uh, big lagoon where, there, where this is a, a meeting place of manatees. I've been starting to think a lot about manatees, um, who, who in a way are, are, are a lot like whales or you know, gentle vegetarian yeah, I mean, whales are obviously not all vegetarian, but um, you know these very uh, the manatees, you know, who who subsist on, on seagrass as, as their main source of food. So I've been thinking a lot about the manatees. Um, recently, an animal I became interested in is the Weddell the Weddell seal. I don't know if you know about this animal. I saw it in a documentary about about the oceans. Um, it's an animal that uh, lives under the ice in the Arctic. And um, basically, it has to come up because the mammal has to come up to breathe every so often, and it does that by using its teeth to chew holes in the ice so it can come up to breathe. And so it chew holes in the ice, come up and breathe, and come back down. And then when it needs to breathe, they're going to do it again. And eventually, its teeth just wear down to nubbins, and then it can't eat anymore. Then it dies. Which <laughs> I wrote a poem about because I think that's the saddest story. And I feel a strange connection with that too because I'm I'm a tooth grinder. My my teeth are pretty are pretty worn down. So. I think just inhabiting a body, being a you know, we're being a human inhabiting a body, it's, it's inevitable that we start seeing connections between ourselves and animals, because there isn't really that much difference between a human body and an animal body. You know, the way we relate to our teeth, the way we relate to our skin. Um, Is this leading you towards a a different manuscript as as your next project? Uh, yeah. So the manuscript I'm working on right now is it's called Manatee Lagoon, which is the name of that that Manatee uh, res, uh, I'm saying resort, but I use that. It's not, it's not really a resort. It's just kind of like a cove where a bunch of manatees go. Yeah, I've written a number of manatee poems lately, and I, I mentioned this to a friend, and they're like, oh, you're really doubling down on that sea animal thing, huh? But um, I, I I don't want to get myself uh, pigeonholed as a as a sea animal writer, but uh, that, that's sort of that, that's currently where the manuscript stands. I, I, th- I think the manatee is, a, is kind of a potent, potent symbol, and I, I use it to talk about family, to talk about politics, to talk about different things, so... Well, the manatee is actually, yeah, is a really fascinating creature. I mean, just the different, uh, we were talking about names. I mean, here's another creature that has operated under numerous names and different myths, you know. Right, right. Yeah, the, the manatee, the, the, you're, you're thinking about the mermaids, right? Yeah, I'm thinking partly about the mermaid and partly, um, what was it, someone told me. Oh, the dugong, right, right. So the dugong, I think it's a dugong. separate okay. species, but it's, it's the closest relative of the, of the manatees. Manatees are Atlantic Ocean animals, and dugongs are their Pacific Ocean cousins. Mm. Right. I, I think at some point in the evolutionary tree, they split off from each other. But they're, okay. they're, And there's subtle differences, kind of like how there's subtle differences between dolphins and porpoises. But they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're very closely related animals. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, there is like a, a really fascinating, you know, history around the creature and its relationship to, um, in to humans and how the humans see, I, I guess this is one of the interesting things I find about this conversation is that, you know, my own background in, in technology, mathematics, technology, and computer science, um, I wrote a lot about like uh, automata and, and robots, you know, in my most recent book. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought a lot about the ways in which like the machine becomes a mirror for ourselves, that we see ourselves, you know, in this construction that we've made. Right. And, and the earlier model for that was the ways in which people wrote and talked about animals and consciously or unconsciously right. reflected what they thought about themselves and their own humanity. This is The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. We're talking to Jenna Lee, poet and physician, about her love and obsession with sea creatures and how that takes her through a variety of other interests and eventually to language and names. I'm trying to, currently trying to reteach myself Vietnamese, which is my parents' language, which I never really picked up that well. And I'm thinking about the different names we have for different animals in Vietnamese, particularly for sea animals, because I guess humans discovered land animals first, right? And then when they started discovering sea animals, they, would, they didn't know how to relate to them, so they would try to model their relationship with sea animals after the relationship with land animals. So I guess what I'm getting at is, for example, the, the Vietnamese word for whale is ca voi, which literally means elephant fish. Because, you know, they saw a whale and they're like, what is it? It's an elephant fish. Or um, like a, like a, a dolphin's a cat hail is a, is a pig fish. And I, I think a, a, a manatee is a high ngoo, which I think is a, it's like a sea horse, I want to say. So the, the way we name the animal sort of reflects, when you, when you think about the name of the, of the animal, it brings you back to that frontier when the, the human was encountering that animal for the first time, right on the brink of, of trying to understand something new by relating it to something old. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, so much of, uh, yeah, it reminds me too of European expansion into Africa led them to try to name all sorts of different creatures they'd never encountered before, or or sort of how the Greeks had done that before them. And, you know, the hippopotamus is what? Basically a water or river horse. Uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because uh, I guess, because manatees, I guess we, we, in English, for some reason, they're called the sea cow. So why is it that in some species it's a cow and some species, in some languages it's a cow and some languages it's a horse? And it, what does that say about, about the culture that, that name is the animal? Mm-hmm. So where, where do you see this? I mean, this, <laughs> you say you don't want to become yeah. pigeonholed as, as sort of a, a poet that writes simply about uh, sea creatures. Um, do you, I mean, do you, it wouldn't be so bad. It's not as far as pigeonholes go. It's not so bad. <laughs> it, it isn't so bad. I mean, I mean, it's it's definitely yeah. uh, it's a definitely a way to market yourself. Um, right, and I mean, maybe you get some free passes I mean, to SeaWorld and other places. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not unique, right? There, there's there's a lot of authors right now writing about writing using sea animals as as a as a motif. Um, just, I mean, I know Jessica Quello had a book about whales this past year. Of course, Uruji Mohabir writes about writes about whales frequently. So it's I mean, I think everyone has their own take on it based on, you know, their their own way of seeing. But uh, it's not an, it's not an individual thing so much as I think, I think a, 
there, there's a big community of writers right now who are, who are writing about these things in different ways. What, what do you think, why, why do you think that is the case? You know, what, what brings about this sort of whale zeitgeist that we're, we're experiencing right now? Right. So I, the whale zeitgeist is interesting. I saw a documentary recently that, that I mean, it goes back to like the, the 50s and 60s, right, when there was this big environmentalist movement. Um, when, that's when they passed all these international laws being like, you, sh- you cannot harm, you cannot harm cetaceans and so forth. Um, and I think it's just a peri- it's been a periodic fascination of humans since then. It's interesting we all we all bring different things to it, right? So so what called out to me in, in the story of the whale first was you know that story of migration. Um, I was talking to an- another poet, uh, Jessica Coelho, who has a who has a book Hunt. Um, her her book is titled Hunt. It's also a book about whales. Um, and what called out to her it, it's sort of modeled after Moby Dick. As if it tells the story retells the story of Moby Dick through the voices of, of the whales and of the women who are sort of uh, marginalized in the book. So she sort of viewed the, the, the violence of, of men in history toward animals and is seeing connections between that and the violence between genders and so forth. So it's interesting. I think, I think in some ways it's a motif that speaks out particularly to people from marginalized communities um, in, in different ways. I was fascinated to see that she had taken, had taken that motif in a totally different direction that was than, than, than I did in my book. But but there were resonances as well. I just wanted to go back to the other point you made too about, about whales turning away from things. And when you were saying that, it made me think that that poetry is really the the perfect medium for for negotiating our relationship with the whales. Poetry, right? What what defines it? Why is it called a verse? A verse means turning, right? That, that at the end of the line you turn and that you make this decision. That in some ways a conscious decision, in some ways not a conscious decision to to just stop the line to turn and start a new line. And that's that's basically the essence of what makes poetry different from prose, at least historically. And that's so. In some ways, the, the poet is, is being like the whale with each line break that they're. So when you said that, that, that kind of made that come together for me. <laughs> I just now I'm imagining the poem as as a whale track. You know, you just see right, the, the, right. the trail it, behind. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Except unlike the whale track, I guess it it, it doesn't doesn't fade as as, as quickly. <laughs> no, we we I have mean, a record of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you're saying it's not a conscious decision what the, the, what the whale did. I mean, what is right? Like, how how many of our decisions are really free will? Yeah, yeah. Um, are there? So you you said that that there are other obsessions that have been also occupying your attention and your your mind over the years beyond the Bronte sisters and and sea creatures. Um, what are yeah. some other things that are kind of pressing on your mind these days? So I guess, I guess, like the Bronte sisters and the fairy tales, when I was growing up, um, we, there weren't a whole lot of movies with Asian people in them. So we would we would watch a ton of these Taiwanese uh, movies from the 70s. They call them Chiang Yao movies. They, they were like a subgenre of Taiwanese movies. They were kind of like romantic melodramas. And I've seen like so many of them. And it's terrible because I, I, I watched so many of them. They're probably the main thing I watched through a large part of my life. And I've never met anyone who wanted to talk to me about them. I've never met anyone else who's, who's watched it as many as I have. And that was another thing that when I started using the Internet, I tried to find people who, who had seen the, – they're terrible movies, by the way. <laughs> they're, they're, very, they're very, like, melodramatic. And, they're, they're, you know, it's always like a, this couple, they get together, and then one of them falls into a coma or something like that. Or, but, yeah, I mean, it, I, I watched them, I think, at a very formative age. So they, they kind of stuck with me, and, like, the songs from the movies stuck with me. Um, I watched them with my parents. Um, it was sort of a family experience. We watched them at a time when we were very hungry for representation in media that somehow resembled us. So we really, it really sank into us. Like, 
recently I, I found one of these songs on, on YouTube, and I, I just played the first few bars for my dad, and he recognized it right away. He's like, oh, it's from that movie from, like, 1974. And so, so that, it's kind of funny. So, like, <laughs> now that I think about it, it really messed me up growing up with, the, like, the Bronte sisters on one side and these, like, Taiwanese movies on the other side, kind of shaping my, my views of, like, relationships and people. But uh, <laughs> they're both so, in their own way, so, like, not not like reality, but, uh, yeah, so that, that was another, that's another thing that keeps popping up. I find recurrently in my writing is fr- frequently I'm making allusions to these movies. I think largely because I'm secretly hoping that somebody will, will recognize what I'm talking about and, uh, get back to me on that. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very specific genre. I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, of that genre, I've probably encountered maybe one movie and it was, I think we saw it as part of a Chinese class. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think it was like late 70s, early 80s. It was Liangshan Bo Juin Tai. It's the, it's basically, it's the butterfly lover one where, where they. How did that one go? So that one, that one goes where, where, um, so they're, they meet while going to school. She has dressed herself up, disguised herself as a man and gone um, to seek an education and befriends, you know, this handsome scholar who finds himself having feelings for her, not realizing that she is a woman. And so um, I, don't, I don't think I've seen that exact one, but... <laughs> so what happens is that, um, you know, he, he doesn't know what to do with this. You know, he just thinks that mm-hmm. they're close friends. And then she gets called home because there's an arranged marriage, which she does not want. Oh. She desperately wants to marry him. And so she tells him to come and visit her at her home. And he does not arrive in time to stop the marriage. Oh. Um, so she she ends up, um, I'm trying to remember if she commits suicide or she she dies for some other reason, tragically. Oh. And then he dies. And they're reunited. Um, they're both reincarnated as butterflies and reunited. Oh, wow, wow. It's funny, as you were telling this story, there were moments where, like, I was thinking, yeah, I've watched that, and then I was like, no, I haven't, because they're they're all very similar, right? There's often a a trope of mistaken identity and mm-hmm. something like, yeah. So, so this, this is classical yeah, that, classical period, and this is um, this is really like one of the longest, you know, most famous of the Chinese love story tradition. So interesting. So interesting. yeah, it, and it kind of plays directly to that idea of like that that red string of red thread of fate that ties people together. And how even if it fails in wow. this life, they will be bound together in the next. Right. The one that the one that's always stuck with me is there's a one that goes on for like eighty episodes. It was very it was on TV back <laughs> in the late seventies. It's called like in Vietnamese. It's called I watched them all dubbed in Vietnamese. Um, mm. In Vietnamese, it's called Som Vang, and I think in Chinese, it's something like the the courtyard within. Mm. Um, it's, it's actually what, what's interesting, but it's, it's a very Jane Eyre influenced story. There's like a part where the where the man, you know, he goes blind in a fire. It's, it's very, it's it's basically like a, it's a very uh, Jane Eyre influenced plot, which is funny because I, I just actually became aware of this plot before I, before I read Jane Eyre. So it's it's not really clear which which one has sunk more into my psyche. But uh, yeah, that that's the one that I keep coming back to. It's like 80, 80 episodes long. It's it's a terrible tearjerker. I just remember there's like a scene where the the gentleman who's who's gone blind is sitting in front of the altar he's constructed to his wife who he thinks has died, who he thinks has committed suicide, and he's sitting there, you know, wringing his hands and expressing all this remorse. And it's, a, it's a terrible tearjerker. Is that, is that again, a, a period uh, drama? Is that set at a... No, no, that, that, that's a... 
I don't think so. It takes it takes place on like a, it's like a tea plantation, but it's kind of, it's vaguely modern. I think most of the ones I mm. watched um, were were vaguely contemporary. Had twentieth century settings. Although I did I did watch some that took place in, in the older period as well, and it had you know warriors and so forth. I'll admit that I, I really haven't seen that many of them, but I have been <laughs> addicted instead to J drama and K drama, uh, watching more contemporary ones. Mm-hmm. And I'll get sucked into to watching some really long series, and I think, how long have I invested in this story? And then at right. some point, the the um, melodrama hits sort of a breaking point, and I just can't put up with it any longer. I just, right. I, I just bail it's out. Become... <laughs> and they used to be a niche thing to watch these things, but now if you go on Netflix, they they have a lot of Korean and Japanese dramas now. Yeah, yeah, like, and they're they're really they're really like slick, like really you know slickly produced. Like when I used to watch you know the the old Chinese dramas, you had to go get these bootleg copies of this like really uh, sketchy you know Asian store downtown and there'd be this really dusty shelf of these like bootleg videos and it was a really a niche thing and now I feel it's becoming it's becoming very at least with the J dramas and the K dramas there are, are are developing very big fan bases now. Yeah, I, I have been surprised by how popular it's become. Um and I do remember those those type of stories. In fact when I was living in Koreatown in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, even a few years ago, I think there was still a shop that that catered to that. You know, would still sell mm-hmm. kind of uh, mysteriously produced <laughs> videotapes and and DVDs. You know, it's like, hmm, I don't know where they're getting them from, but they're they're serving sort of an audience. You know, <laughs> right, right. And it, in some ways, it goes. It's it's not that different from I think my childhood obsession with the Bronzes that. One of the reasons my mother was comfortable watching these these films with me is that they're they're ultimately very chaste. Like even if they're they're love stories, they're very there's like a strange airbrushing of all of all sexuality out of them. That they present this on the one hand very emotionally intense way of of feeling, but also strangely pure as well. Which which I think we see in a lot of the the those novels, you know, like the like the like the Bronte novels and other novels of, of that that period as well. So there's a strange resonance between I think those two those two uh, kinds of media. It is also interesting. I, I remember like films from the 80s, you know, the Chinese films from the 80s would definitely make use of various tropes to, uh, visual tropes to avoid like actually showing anything. So it always pans right. away and then there's like a, there's like a tree, <laughs> there's a tree and trembling blossoms and suddenly it falls. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, right. Yeah. And you're like going, uh-huh, Yes. <laughs> We know what's happening. <laughs> right, right. And it makes up for it by sublimating all that intense, repressed feeling. It's just very intense emotional feeling, right? You come mm-hmm. away from the, watching those movies and shows just, like, totally emotionally drained because they're just so, like, the love that's portrayed them is, like, really obsessive, really intense love. Yes, and I, I think, like, the, the Korean dramas I've seen have definitely been, I kind of rank things in terms of their their emotional intensity and sometimes manipulation mm-hmm. as as going from the Chinese to the the Japanese to the Korean as being the most overwrought and intense. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so on that spectrum, which is the most? Which end is the most overwrought? The Korean or the, the Korean, Korean? The Korean. The Korean end. That's interesting. I haven't seen that many, but I, I think I think you may be right. Yeah. And I, I say that partly because I've seen some some like shows that originated as Japanese shows remade as Korean shows and, right, and right. see but sort of a translation, a yeah. the cultural translation that happens and certain things just become what was a nine becomes an 11. You know, it, it just it right, go, right, goes right. over the top. Yeah. 
and it's but it's kind of fascinating too to see like what ways things get translated um cultural translation in terms of representation as well as language translation how things get turned. right right that's fascinating because you, you know like the what's considered the greatest work in vietnamese literature for example they, they call it trinq and it's, it's an adaptation of a chinese story and there are a lot of things that changed from from the way it was in the chinese original to when it became vietnamese um it had a prototype, but it became in in the cultural translation and the rewriting. It became something that's now viewed as quintessentially Vietnamese because it's it's undergone so much change. Mm-hmm. So, in a weird way, it too is like one of the whales. You know, it is is turned back and then evolved. <laughs> right, into I, I, like the, I like the connection. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I note from your various bios that um, you you actually did your undergraduate work in mathematics. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Was that an early obsession, or was that a a path to get you to to medical school? Um, I guess it was. I mean, sort of sad to call it an early obsession. Um, to make it sound like a like a love that slowly faded. Um, and in some ways, that's not really accurate. I guess my story. I mean, I could spend like hours talking about my my relationship with math. But basically, when when I was a kid, I was about fifteen. Um, I scored pretty well on a on a national math test. So they so I got an invitation to go to this math summer math camp. And I went to this camp, and it was like it, it was an incredible experience, basically. And I think it was an incredible experience, largely for social reasons. That before that, I had had some difficulty making friends. And um, this, when I went to this math camp, it was the first time I met a lot of kids from other Asian American families, kids who who could relate to certain things I would say. You know, I'd, I'd make offhand references to this and that, and they would understand what I was saying. And and it became like sort of this pivotal moment in my life where I was like, wow, I kind of want to live in this math camp forever. So. I, so I, I went on to study math, and I think part of it was because I loved math intrinsically, but part of it because I wanted to recreate that social experience of being at that at that camp and feeling like I belonged in a place. And what I realized is that I was kind of good at it, but I wasn't that good at it. And it's kind of it's interesting because I, I just read this great essay online last night by a, by a writer named Jim Prop about how. Uh, math is sort of tormented by this this myth of the, the cult the cult of the genius that so many people drop out of math because they realize that they're not geniuses and they think that in order to really pursue math in a meaningful way you have to be like one of the best one of the greatest and I think I fell victim to that that I was like you know I I like this I'm kind of good at it but I'm also like not as good as all these other people and so I, I kind of lost interest once I got to some of the higher level stuff and I ended up going um, to a different career route instead. And it's interesting. Uh, I I still think that's a big part of who I am. I think I am, in a way, a math person. Um, but it's it's such a specialized field, you know. Like it's it's not like in the old days when Fermat, who was like a basically a math amateur, he would come up with all these theorems, even though he wasn't like deeply entrenched in academia. I think now to keep up with the the exciting math, to really stay on top of the vocabulary and uh, stay on top of uh, every what's going on, it's it's you, you can't really dabble in it anymore. So. Um, once I stopped studying it, you know, at that level, I just kind of like dropped out of that whole math world. And in some ways, I'm very nostalgic about that. So I, I don't know if it counts as one of my obsessions. It's just sort of, it seems like it's a it's a place I lived where I ultimately felt like I couldn't keep living. I, I don't know how you're you're you you relate to math, I guess, in a very different way. You you still work and you still work in math. Um, so well, I, a, I don't know if I, it's I don't work so much in math these days, but. I, I think like you, I actually, I had, I did well early on in math, although I have a funny story about how that worked out. I actually, partly yeah. it was because I was educated, um, I did my kindergarten in Taiwan, 
And oh. we started with math extremely early in, in kindergarten. So we were doing multiplication tables in kindergarten. And mm-hmm. I came back. I remember hating studying multiplication tables in Chinese. And then came back to, the, to Canada and thought I was given, you know, a break and didn't have to worry about it anymore. And then like a few years later, I was back to memorizing multiplication tables. And, and that would kind of it was a pattern. So people would think I was good at math, but it was simply because I had an earlier exposure. Right. I, I feel like for me, it was a lot. My, my mother just drove me a multiplication table when I was like four or five. So I, I knew how to multiply like you know, big numbers by the time I started school. And she often thought I was brilliant, but it was really just my mother had just put in all this work to make sure I learned this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then like later on, I went through, like in high school, I did the International Baccalaureate Program and mm-hmm. did, studied for the higher level math course. And did not do as well as I needed to. And so I think they, they mm-hmm. gave me like sort of the subsidiary level, which was still decent. But mm-hmm. I came in way over prepared for university mathematics because I spent my first three years of my, my undergraduate um, in computer engineering and computer science taking math classes constantly and not encountering anything new. Um, I see. And so everyone thought I was really smart. And instead it was simply, well, it's the second or third time I've seen this material. So I'm now actually getting right. So, right. so, but at some point I realized, you know, there was a wall. I hit a wall and I realized mm-hmm. there are people that are, are a lot better than me. That for, for them, this comes naturally. And I think I also hit a moment where I thought maybe I don't belong in this world entirely either. Um, right. So we both, I guess, in some ways, did the whale thing, and we turned our backs yeah. on on sort of the the landmass of mathematics <laughs> and went <laughs> back to the ocean. Right. Um, that's sort of a sad way. Of, <laughs> even the way you know, I like to think of it as like you know the whale journey is a heroic one. But ours is ours is more uh, more uh, <laughs> or more bittersweet. But, but yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting that. Yeah, that that early exposure you go you learning you know math in, in Taiwanese kindergarten or me with my mother drilling me like it's it's such a small thing in a way but it totally shapes the next twenty years of your life right like like I was set up like people when I started school people were like oh you're a smart kid and that was basically my identity for the next like eighteen years basically all because my mother had taught me multiplication like that changed everything right but like, people wouldn't offer me cigarettes or you know because I, I was like a nerd it's interesting. Yeah, it, we, we, mathematics and language. I mean, the early exposures to those, and and you know, growing up with uh, my father's first degree was in linguistics, and then later on it was mm-hmm. library science. And so, I just lived. You know, my mother was um, a voracious reader in multiple languages, and so I just lived right. surrounded by books and surrounded by language. Um, right. If anything, my interest in mathematics was the oddity. That was the part that took me. I was odd because, well, I guess my mother was, uh, my mother has always been particularly sharp with mathematics and accounting. Um, mm-hmm. At one point, even wanted to run her own business school. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that was her plan before she met my father, uh, was to run right. a business school. My my mother, my mother studied accounting, and then and then she married my father. Yeah, that's interesting that we both have that that math, that business, that kind of minded math ness on our on our mother's side. Yes, and and what I find remarkable too is that my father wooed my mother with poetry. He wasn't a particularly really? great poet, but that's how he eventually won her over was with poetry. 
What, with with his own poetry, he wrote his own poetry. Um, I've wow. read I've read some of those poems. They're not particularly great, but she was impressed <laughs> with the fact that he would he would do that, and that um, mm-hmm. it was a, just a completely different approach, and a completely different, you know. So it was just it was interesting how they ended up falling together. Um, Right, that, that's interesting. That po- poetry wooing mass and coming together is like a positive in you. That's, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. So um, it's it's been an absolute delight to talk to you. And I think as we as we wrap up here, I think it would be great to hear. Do you have a couple poems that you'd like to read? Yeah. Yeah. So as we were talking, I, I thought about it. there were a couple poems that you know kind of came up naturally. So maybe I'll read a, a couple from the from the newer book, A History of Visitation American Diaspora. So this poem is called Suckling. The milk produced by humpback whales is pink. The calf rolls over on his side, his inky lips glued to his mother's teeth, and drinks thick cream the color of diluted blood. I have long forgotten the taste of the milk wrung from my mother's breasts in infancy. I've tongued her blood in drugged dreams only. Once, when young, I punched her bicep, but it didn't bleed. Despite our differences, we'd go in summer, she and I, to the fairgrounds by the river, where vendors hawked fried alligator liver, hand-dyed batiks, beers, Himalayan bloodstones. I would stand there, shaded by a red-striped tent, a foaming cup clutched in my prepubescent hands. They sold it for $1.90. Strawberry milk. Its coldness soothed my blood. And there's another poem that, as we were talking, I thought about it. It's a poem called Minnesota, which is uh, where I grew up. Um, and it's, a, it's sort of a form poem in that the last word of the first line is also the last word of the last line, and then so on. So it kind of makes a, it kind of has a symmetry up and down. So this one's called Minnesota. Here, the sly west wind waylaid sweet Winona. This same breeze some centuries before blew headstrong Helen's skiff toward Troy's wine craters. One and the same gust some lifetimes later pushed my parents' ship toward U.S. shores. West wind, I need you now. Here, no one shores me up. I have no teacher, no translator. No one to stop me from stumbling into craters. Panther straddling god of poems, I'm for you and only you. Kiss me like you kissed Winona. Do we have time for another one? Or sure, one? sure. One more. Yeah. So what you were saying about your parents courting each other kind of reminded me of this, of this poem. Um, it's called Trick. It's from my first book, uh, Six Rivers. Trick. America. You're the Halloween costume my immigrant father rented and never returned. Dad clambered inside your baggy interior because he wanted his share of the season's sweet treats. With your reptilian tail, Dad batted away his rivals and scampered on to his goal. Dressed up in you, America, my father seduced my starry-eyed mother behind a tall hedge. But now the costume shop is demanding you back. They call our house daily, ringing the phone off its hook. Well, thank you. Those were wonderful. And remind us again about 
when your your book is being re-released um, and where okay. people can right. get it. So, uh, yeah, so the book is a, a history of the cetacean American diaspora. Um, it first came out in 2016 and it went out of print, um, and it's coming back out from Indolent Books. Um, the official release date is uh, in, in mid-April, April 15th, and that's when you'll be able to buy it on the Indolent Books website and on Amazon and all the other places. Terrific. Well, thank you once again for being on The Lit Fantastic. And we are, it's wonderful to have you and we look forward to hearing more about you, more about this book and the books yet to come. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. That was poet and physician Jenna Lee. Her most recent book, A History of the Cetacean American Diaspora, is being reprinted by Indolent Books this April. To learn more about Jenna and her work, you can visit her website at jennaleewriting.com. That's www.jennaleewriting.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Lit Fantastic. This episode and previous episodes are available online in the archive at kboo.fm or on iTunes, SoundCloud, or our website, www.thelitfantastic.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken.